Thank you for joining IAB Dare. Hi, everybody. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us today on IAB Dare, our regular live stream show in which we try to connect the industry. Uh, today, we are talking, it is uh, Thursday, September 17th. We're talking about the role of founders in direct-to-consumer and other brands and how to build a brand people love from day one. I'll be joined shortly by two remarkable people. Emily Hayward is the co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler, a brand consultancy. She's also the author of the new book, Obsessed, which I can show you the cover of right here and we'll probably pop the cover on as well. Building a brand people love from day one, which I read cover to cover over the weekend and loved. Uh, we also are joined by Charlotte Cho. She is the co-founder of Soko Glam and the founder of Then I Met You, a cosmetics company. Uh, we're going to be digging in on what those companies are. Uh, I wanted to alert you, and I'll talk about this at the end. Also, we have our Brand Disruption Summit coming in November. Uh, it's an exciting time, November 9th and 10th. And that is when we devote ourselves a part of Disruption Week to conversations about branding, brands, how B2C brands are changing everything, how large incumbent brands are responding. So uh, take a look at iab.com slash events to learn more about that. This is going to be a taste. As you see on the bottom of the screen, if you have questions during our show, please post them on Twitter using the hashtag IABthere. It's all caps, uh, IABthere, one word. Let's please bring Emily Hayward and Charlotte show onto the stream. I'm so excited to welcome them. Uh, here we go. Emily Hayward, Charlotte Joe, welcome to IAB There. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you so much for coming. Now, let's start with uh, Emily. What is Red Antler? Give us the tweetable version. Uh, what's it about? And I'm going to ask the same question to you, Charlotte, in just a minute. But with you, I'm asking it twice. So we are a brand company that specializes in startups and our belief when we started the business 13 years ago is that the sooner you can start thinking about brand and baking it into who you are, the more set up for success you'll be. So half of our clients are pre-launch startups. We're partnering directly with entrepreneurs. And the other half are later stage startups and more established businesses who are looking to disrupt themselves. Because I think for most people outside of our industry, Brand is something that you uh, put on a cow to distinguish it from uh, all of the other virtually identical cows. So what do you, Emily, mean by brand? Well, it's a great question. And I would say even people within our industry get confused about what we mean by brand. And a lot of times people mistake the expressions of a brand for a brand itself. So they'll think that your brand is a logo or a logo and a name and some colors and fonts. All of those pieces are really important. They help people understand your brand. But the way that we think of brand and define it is that it's what your business stands for at its core. It's your reason for being. It's why people should care. And then that idea needs to get infused through all the ways that you behave and interact, not only with your consumers, but with your internal team as well. So rather than just an external marker, you're talking about something that's really deep in the corporate culture and the DNA of a corporation. Absolutely. And I think one of the main things that's evolved about the meaning of brand over the years is that it really no longer can just be a layer that sits on top. I think consumers have so much more information and knowledge and choice and therefore power than ever before. 
and they're looking to dig deeper and they want to make sure that whatever you're saying outwardly is really backed up internally by how you operate. I think it's fair to say that the rise of this sort of brand thinking, which you articulate so beautifully in your book, coincides with the rise of the internet and with the rise of a kind of information access and transparency. And it's just so much harder to hide behind the 30 second spot than it was you know, 20 years ago. Charlotte, let's turn to you. Um, what is Soko Glam? How is uh, that different than then I met you? Uh, and then I'm eager to ask you to reflect on, on your relationship, uh, your company's relationship with uh, Red Antler and sort of what Emily was talking about in terms of a brand of the DNA of a company. Sure. Um, so Soko Glam is a journey that I started with my husband 12 years ago. Um, and it's a Korean beauty site. It started out as a Korean beauty site that curated all of the innovations from Korea and brought it to the US. Uh, we've evolved since then. Um, we are now a digital skincare platform because we offer more than just curated goods, but we offer education about skincare through the clog, which is our content arm of Soko Glam. And we also offer a service. So we just actually, um, over the past few years, we've been offering one-on-one -on -one digital skin consultations. So people can get complimentary consultations via text anytime they want with our skin experts. And on top of that, uh, we have now developed our business starting two years ago with Red Antler, creating our own line of products, which is Then I Met You. Um, and we created this premium line, um, actually without Soko Glam at first. So we didn't sell it on the Soko Glam platform. And there's a reason for that. I'll get into that later. Um, but we also have developed now two other skincare lines in 2020. Yes, we've launched them digitally <laughs> through the pandemic. Um, and we've been able to kind of uh, broaden that, you know, scope of our own private brand uh, this year. So it's a kind of so, multifaceted. And then I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Please go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So I'm just trying, I'm eager to get the details, so of course I, I rudely interrupted you. Then I Met You is one of three brands that Soko Glam has launched. What are the other two? Um, one is called Good Skin Days, um, and that, that ties directly in with our mission of having only good, good skin days ahead. And then our other brand we launched is called The Clog, which is directly from our brand, the content arm I was talking about, the skincare resource guide that we have on the clog.co, we made a brand off of that as well. And we have more coming. <laughs> uh, that's very exciting. And so, I mean, it, what, what I'd like to connect this to is one of the differentiators that our friends uh, at Nike were experimenting with a few years ago was they, they were early on with wearables and with using the data kind of contrail that comes off of athletes, whether professional or personal, to, to go from being more than just the purveyor of shoes, but to being sort of a running partner uh, with the people who wore the shoes. And it sounds to me like Soko Glam is, is inhabiting some interestingly uh, similar territory where you're not just interested in selling products, you're interested in uh, sort of beauty as a service uh, that your people are, your customers are getting, and yet not they're not paying for these consultations. You said they were complimentary and people can yes. tax. So how do you afford that? Um, you know, it's, it's actually quite scalable because it is allowing us to acquire a lot of new customers. Um, and so we've been testing this out for several years now, and that's 
luckily as a digitally native brand, we've been experimenting with this for a long time before COVID hit, obviously before, you know, the kind of department store style of selling cosmetics um, started to decline. And we're just really innovating it and making sure we touch all the customers that would prefer to get their skin advice over a text message now. Uh, and that's been really helpful for us. Um, and of course, we as a, still as a startup, we've only raised $2 million um, in 2016 um, and haven't really sought any funding after that. We've been really able to focus on activities that actually drive growth. Um, so that, that's been a really great learning for us. And, and yeah, I, I realized I didn't get to talk about how we're associated with Red Antler and how we've worked with Emily in the past. Yes. I was just getting <laughs> um, there, but you, you, uh, you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah. So we've had the pleasure of working with Emily and her team at Red Antler, uh, when we decided to create our own, um, uh, our own premium skincare line called Then I Met You. And we knew we wanted to work with someone that truly was able to have the creative side, obviously, um, create a, a, an amazing logo, create amazing brand colors, but also understood the business side of branding as well. And we, so we didn't want to just go with any, any agency, but we wanted someone that truly understood the meat of developing a relationship with the community, really strategizing, um, the relationship with our community and how we would grow, how our brand would reflect that growth. All of that we feel is so important when you start a brand. And so we were so lucky to work with Ran Antler. I will also add that our team got to benefit from skincare consultations. And I'll tell you, it is an amazing strategy for customer acquisition because we all left that process with these new brands that we had to own and that we're still buying to this day. So I will plug the Charlotte Cho skincare consultation method, um, both as a consumer and from a business perspective. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I feel like I should be texting you right away. Let's um, let's dig in on the role of a founder because Charlotte, you're a co-founder of Soko Glam and founder of uh, uh, Then I Met You, which is, I keep stumbling over the name because it's so unusual. And I want to get to the names of both of your companies uh, momentarily, but but Emily, let's have you start. When you're thinking of strategy for a new client, um, how important is a founder? Uh, you know, what's the sort of cognitive freight that a founder plays? You talk about it quite eloquently in your book for, for those people who haven't yet had the pleasure. Um, tell us about how you think about founders. Look, two of the biggest buzzwords today when people talk about brand building are authenticity and brands being more human. And there's nothing more authentic or human than an actual human being. So not every brand is going to have a founder that can be front and center and that can really be part of the brand story and the brand identity. But when you are able to tap into that, it's an incredible advantage. You know, I think the second we met Charlotte and first of all, just met her, right? She's a magnetic person. She's someone that you want to be around. She's someone that you immediately feel comfortable with and inspired by. But she had also already built this unbelievable community of people who were engaged not only with Soko Glam as a business, but with her as a person. And I think it's a lot easier for consumers to form an attachment and an affinity for a person than for a faceless, monolithic corporation. You know, I think a founder can be out there sort of talking about behind the scenes, helping people understand the vision for their company, why they started it, the problem that they're solving, 
and can really play a role that if it were coming from the brand voice would feel like marketing, but when it's coming from a human being, just feels like the truth. So we're always really excited to work with founders who are part of the brand story. It doesn't mean that their face needs to be on the box or even on the homepage, but I think it's an incredible opportunity to round out the brand and tell a different kind of story. Charlotte, how do you feel your role as a co-founder with Soco Glam is distinct from your role as the founder for Then I Met You? Um, they're really both the same, I would say. Um, uh, I would I would just start off by saying when I started out my journey with Soco Glam, it wasn't a planned thing. We weren't trying to we were, we weren't trying to receive funding or get uh, put a business plan together. It was truly built off of a passion I had for Korean skincare after living there for five years. And uh, me, myself, not being a skincare expert at the time, but learning and then getting my esthetician license, I charted that journey publicly. And I think that's how we built our community so organically. They saw that journey and they thought, hey, skincare is so complex, but Charlotte is learning about it now and she can do it, so I can do it too. And I think that really helped people follow along the journey and feel um, you know, part of it in a sense. And they, that's where the trust was built over the years. Uh, even when I wrote my book, The Little Book of Skincare, I, did, I purposely made sure that my book about skincare wasn't from the lens of an expert, a dermatologist, someone who has, who's known about skincare since they were five years old. I, I just authentically, using that word that Emily talked about, um, just shared my story of stumbling ap- across it, seeing the benefits that I had on my skin, and then learning it. That really encouraged other people to feel that they can do it too. So um, just sharing that and not trying to be always the expert, but just a friend uh, that's going to share their best advice. I think that really helped us grow a very organic community. And um, I think from the feedback we get from our customers, even to this day, that's the kind of feedback they provide us. They say that they really like um, hearing from me as because they feel that there's a sense of trust. And we do everything in our power to make sure that we don't disrupt that. Um, and we don't, um, and we really value that because trust is built over years and years um, and can quickly disappear overnight if you make the wrong choices. And, and we have a, an image of the little book of skincare, which uh, on the screen right now. So uh, thank you to my production team for acting fast. Uh, Charlotte, let's let's just dig in for one moment. You, I believe there's a double cleanse that's at the heart of uh, of uh, then I met you. Can you just describe sort of it's a signature product? What is it? Yeah. So um, then I met you started off with the two hardest categories in skincare to launch with, which is cleansing products. And then we're also telling them to do it twice. <laughs> so that's a very difficult proposition, especially since the price point is not, uh, it's a premium price point. Um, but we decided to, again, be authentic to our story. And the reason why I personally decided to do the double cleanse is because that's what got me into skincare. I saw the most results after cleansing my skin twice, which is definitely not the norm in the US, but was more of a, uh, a popular routine in Korea. Um, and so being authentic to that journey and how I got started with skincare, that's how I want to start the skincare line. Um, and it was funny because when I proposed this and talked about it with Red Antler, um, they were really all about it. And they really brought that 
kind of concept to life and made it more palatable for the audience. Uh, they had a lot of great taglines and really leaned into this. Um, for some, I think it would have been construed as like a limitation, but they really ran with it. So that was that was great. I'm glad we started off with that. And actually, in um, in two years, less than two years, we've actually won 11 industry awards um, for only six products. So we're really excited that we've been methodical about each process and every step of the way. Well, congratulations on that. Let's let's talk about the names. Um, Emily, in your book, you talk about the importance of names, the importance of not having uh, names be too literal. So so uh, not calling the brand you know, Double Cleanse, for example, or Korean Double Cleanse. Uh, but, but Red Antler is a somewhat bizarre, surprising name in and of itself. So how the heck did that happen? <laughs> well, you know, we looked at the trends in our industry, and I think there are a lot of creative services companies and agencies that name themselves after the founders. And it's like an ego play, right? It's like someone's last name. And we had no interest in that, never wanted it to be about us. We also didn't want to pick a literal name like, you know, brand factory or, you know, I mean, I think that's another trend. And for us, that just feels so limiting, right? I think we want to be about so much more than just the literal thing that we're making. So instead, we wanted to stand for a concept. And because we work with startups, we decided that concept was growth. And I went on Wikipedia, which is where I go for a lot of naming inspiration and learned that antlers have the fastest growing cells in the animal kingdom. So I hope that fact is true. I don't want to hear on Twitter that it's not. It's too late. <laughs> and then the red was just to create you know, more visual memorability. But I will say, when we first met Charlotte and she shared her name, we were like, what? Like it's, you know, it's four words and it's so unusual, you know, even within the space of coming up with unusual names, it was unlike any name we had heard before. We were like, how are we going to create a logo from four words? And then the more we sat with it, we were more, we were like, this is brilliant. Like you don't forget it. It doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't sound like other beauty brands. It's an idea. And the challenge of building a logo that felt cohesive from a sentence was an amazing challenge that after an initial like fear, we actually got really, really excited um, to rise to the occasion on. So even sometimes like we are, are more conventional and our amazing founders are sort of pushing us to break the rules. Let's lean in on then I met you. I mean, I understand that skincare is different than cosmetics. And so, you know, with, with makeup, you've got a lot of, uh, odd names, uh, you know, Urban Decay, Smashbox, that sort of thing. But but syntactically, you're not talking. It's, there's a lack of adjectivalness uh, in Then I Met You. It's it's about a moment, uh, and a moment. It's also, I mean, the, just the the second person of it to that it's it's directed at you. Uh, and I mean, it it really is. Uh, it's a it it just captures a lot of cognitive energy. How? Did you come up with this and and why? That's a, a great question. And Emily, it's so funny hearing the backstory about that because when I proposed the name, I was worried for a whole week because you said you'd get back to us in a week. And I was like, oh man, I hope Red Antler <laughs> likes the idea because I know that you guys would know conceptually if this is going to work or not. And I was like, you know, I respect Red Antler so much. I was like, I hope they don't reject this idea. I'd be crushed because I already bought the URL. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think with Then I Met You, similar to Emily's story, I didn't want to create it after me. 
um, my name, there's a lot of skincare names that are like Charlotte Cho Skincare or certain things like that. Did not want that. I really wanted to invoke um, an emotional connection right when they heard the name. And I felt like it was never done before in skincare. I really want to do something drastically different. Um, the, then I Met You Skincare line is focused, uh, its ethos is focused on this concept of Chong, which is a Korean cultural concept that is defined by a deep and emotional connection you could have with someone or someplace or something. So that feeling I felt that I Met You really uh, was able to bring out. And also I wanted people, when they saw the name, I wanted to be memorable enough and to the point where they had, or uh, they thought about someone in their life that they, that made their life for the better. Um, so instead of just making it totally directly tied to the brand, they can have their own personal relationship with, with, with the brand name, like what it means to them when they hear the words, then I met you. Um, I think that what really did it for me too, and I knew this was the right name for a skincare line, was that skincare is very personal. It's a personal journey. I really wanted that to um, be present in the name. And I truly believe all brands need to have an emotional connection. Now that there's, a, honestly, I feel like a brand being born every second of the day and launching, even especially in the skincare space and beauty space now, there's, there's so much noise in the space and so much selection to choose from. I really wanted to stand out so that um, people would feel immediately emotionally connected to, to the brand. That's what we try to do in our social channels all the time and in our newsletters. Um, similar to how when you see Nike's slogan, just do it, that feeling that you get when you hear just do it, I wanted that immediately in the name versus just like their, their slogan, our slogan. Well, one day perhaps uh, if we have more time than we have now, you'll, you'll be able to explain to me who the you and then I met you is because that's part that uh, that keeps keeps me circling around. Um, but Emily, I want to talk with you about something you articulated in your book. I have a question about it, which is um, how much of your counsel to brands is predicated on things being relatively low consideration. The the most near as I can tell, the most expensive product that you talked about in the book was Casper, which is the mattress company, which has been quite uh, quite innovative. And uh, there, you're not only spending almost $1,000, if not more, on something, you're also committing to the thing you're going to spend a third of your life on. Um, a lot of other, even with a premium product like the skincare cleanse, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not signing up for that, for that for years. You know, a handbag is a handbag. But for higher consideration uh, products, you know, how does the advice that you're articulating apply? You know, I mean, if it's a Mercedes, uh, you worked when you were at Saatchi and Saatchi on De Beers, uh, you know, a, an engagement ring is a huge purchase for many people. So talk with me about how higher consideration amplifies or challenges the advice you're giving in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think that the higher consideration, the product, even more important to show why you're different and to form a greater connection. You know, we actually helped launch a diamond engagement ring brand last year called Great Heights that in some ways is competing against De Beers. And, you know, ideally you're only buying one engagement ring your entire life, right? So, you know, the hope there- That's the plan. That, yeah, that's the hope, right? So in that case, it's not just like, oh, you know, what's the harm? I'll try out this $8 mascara. If I don't like it, I'll buy a new one in a week. Instead, you're embracing this brand into a, a lifelong choice and, and part of your identity. You know, I think that people are forming much closer relationships with the brands that they choose these days 
is exactly because to Charlotte's point, they have more choice. So it's much more deliberate. You know, consumers have more choice, more information, more power. They are deliberately picking the brands that they want to align themselves with and bring into their lives. And, it, you know, that's one thing if we're talking about, you know, one of your T-shirts among eight or 10 or 50 T-shirts. It's another if you're talking about, you know, your car or even more, your bank, your health care, um, you know, the fundamental institutions that we rely on to survive and thrive. So. Uh, Charlotte, let's start with you. You spent some time, uh, I believe, at Samsung. How do big companies take the kind of counsel that Emily is giving us uh, and translate them when when it's not a company that's run by a married couple with a team, but you have you have the ability to to create culture with a relatively small group uh, and with a huge online community. But when you're working within a gigantic global company, how how can you affect that kind of change or, uh, you know, how did, how did, or on the converse, how did your experience at Samsung inform the way you built Soko Glam and your other brands? That's a great question. Um, I, at Samsung, I definitely felt like a cog in the wheel. <laughs> um, and I knew that when I was building Soko Glam with Dave, um, there's a definite magic uh, with having less resources. <laughs> and um, less access because you had to definitely be creative. Uh, I remember when Soko Glam first got started, people at the time were not very comfortable shopping for beauty online. They were very hesitant to purchase something they haven't touched and felt or even smelt the fragrance of um, before you know jumping in and, and purchasing. And even people were skeptical of putting their credit card information online at the time too. Um, so people told us that Soko Glam would never work out. No one wanted to buy brands they've never heard of online. Uh, but we pushed forward because we were limited. We didn't have the resources or, or, or the funding to actually open up a brick and mortar store. Um, so I think the problem with larger companies, they tend to have bigger budgets and they tend to throw money at the problem um, instead of doing things that are grassroots different. You know, they rely um, on, yeah, money to solve most of their problems. And I think Dave and I, because we are actually coming from uh, we, we have immigrant families. We didn't really grow up with a lot of resources. I think we're both on the same page in that whenever we have a problem, our solution is the last resort is to throw money at it. Um, that's why we've, we've refrained from doing online digital advertising for the you for a whole year and a half. Um, mm. We have not actually, we haven't, we've just begun to talk about it now. And that's kind of incredible in the D2C space that we haven't spent a, a dime on Instagram or or Facebook ads. Uh, so we're always trying to be creative and that has allowed us to be as resourceful as possible, come up with new strategies and ways that perhaps the larger companies aren't, aren't used to. Well, speaking on behalf of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, if you do decide to uh, start <laughs> investing, we're here to help you with uh, with that process. Uh, Emily, we spent a lot of money any... on the glam side. <laughs> I, I, I have no doubt. Uh, Emily, do you want to add anything from your perspective working uh, with large, your large clients when you were on the agency side? How do yeah, bigger companies do this? We also still now at Red Antler, you know, partner with very large corporations who are looking to behave more like a startup and they see the world is changing and they don't want to get left behind. And they've brought us on to help them think about what's next and how do they innovate and how do they launch brands that are going to have the same kind of 
relevance and passion that these newer brands are able to elicit. You know, I think it looks often like direct-to-consumer brands have such an advantage, right? Because they have this direct relationship and they're able to really sort of, you know, not rely on retailers or wholesalers and, you know, instead sort of speak directly to the people they're trying to reach. But I think a lot of the principles that they employ um, can be embraced by huge corporations too. And I think much of what they're doing um, in the direct consumer space is about focus. It's about recognizing that you don't have to tell the entire story on the box. You know, you can have it unfold over time. You can take advantage of, of other channels. You can sort of view your relationship with your consumers much more holistically and not feel that every time you're appearing in front of them, you have to like list every single reason why they might want to buy you. I think I see large companies often hedging their bets a little, you know, there's a risk aversion, which makes sense, right? There's, there's more to lose, but I think that you're never going to get ahead by trying to, you know, produce data for every single choice that you're making or, you know, be all things to all people all the time. I think instead it's got to be about, you know, what's the unique story you can tell? How do we drill down to that? How do we elevate it to a singular, emotional, compelling place? And then get rid of all the rest. Because all the rest is is fluff and it's self-serving and it's not ultimately helping the people that you're looking to reach. So to me, it always comes back to the consumer and ensuring that everything you're doing is in service of them and in benefit of them. And if you see you know, your role is always providing more value than what you're asking for, you're going to succeed. Well, that's a terrific, uh, actually a pair of terrific answers. So thank you. Let's talk about where we are right now. Uh, this show started because, you know, in March, uh, people were disconnected. Uh, we didn't, we, we didn't know how we were working. We didn't know where we were working. We didn't know we were going to live. Uh, and and so, so much has changed since March, just in the last six months, and we don't know when the changes are going to end. Uh, well, actually, we know change will never end, but we don't know when things will start to, to, to shift back in a more positive direction. So my question is for both of you, and Charlotte, I'll ask you first. Um, a lot of D2C brands are really thriving during coronavirus. People are spending more time at home. They're more averse to going to retail stores. They're spending more time with media generally. Um, on the other hand, lots and lots of businesses have also had struggles. So for Soko Glam, for Then I Met You, uh, what's the, the positive and negative of how you, your customers have responded and also how your team has responded during this time? Yeah, um, so luckily, Soko Glam and Then I Met You, we are hyper-focused on skincare. Um, and skincare has been actually on the rise as a form of self-care and health and wellness. Um, versus even a more uh, category like color cosmetics, makeup, people are wearing less makeup. So luckily we're in the bucket where people are actually investing more into that. So that's been great for us. And also being a digitally native brand, um, it has leveled up the playing field a little bit because when they would usually purchase, most of cosmetics were actually purchased still in store around 70 to 80%. But obviously the shift out of stores has allowed the playing field to be leveled out a little and people are searching online more for cosmetics and skincare online. So that's been great for us. Um, I think that there is a democratization of commerce in general that's we're seeing more and more. It's it, COVID has just accelerated that. Uh, everyone's a micro influencer in a sense. Everyone's a micro store or a micro seller. Um, and I think that that 
in a way, Soko Glam and Denimate U has, and other DTC brands have allowed that trend to kind of benefit um, their their strategy. Um, and I think on the on also just I wanted to add as marketing point, um, what we've been really lucky to do is um, also focus a lot of our marketing initiatives and branding initiatives so that it's more international. So before we used to have more pop-ups based in LA or New York, but having more of these digital touch points has allowed more people to tune in that have never been able to join our events before. So that has been more on the positive side. I think negative on the negative side or things that have been challenges, Emily and I were just talking about this. At first for our team, it was great to be able to work from home and, and focus on safety. But then as time is going on, six months down the road, um, we're noticing that so maybe we have to worry about the magic disappearing as a team and, and that creative juice to be collective and flowing um, throughout this time, and especially as new team members join us that have never really been part of our culture in person before. So there are some challenges, there are some cons to um, working entirely from home. Right. And also, um, if you're a parent of a young child, as Emily, I know you are, uh, that uh, just having to, to juggle uh, so many uh, roles at once. You know, I have two teenagers who are right outside my door and at any moment they may uh, require services. So that's another kind of challenge. But Emily, the, the same question to you. Here you are uh, six months in. Uh, what are the biggest changes and biggest challenges uh, and biggest opportunities that you've seen for Red Antler and for your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, things have evolved since the first month when everybody was sort of reeling, right? I think the first month, no one knew what to do. Is it appropriate to even run an ad right now? We were pushing launches back. I think now we're in a scenario where we have no idea how long this is going to go on. And, and frankly, I think consumers are restless and eager for excitement and news. And I think that's actually a huge opportunity for brands not just to play into our needs for comfort and safety and security, but also to entertain, to inspire, to bring moments of joy um, when many of the ways that we used to seek joy have been taken away from us. So I think brands that recognize that they have an opportunity to actually provide value and lift people's spirits um, can actually be in a really great position. You know, I think this is a, a horrible time period for so many reasons, and I never want to minimize that, you know, people are, are sick and, and dying, um, and it's, it's serious, but I also think that through times of great hardship, we've seen amazing innovation, and that happens again and again throughout history, and, you know, from a startup landscape perspective, I'm already seeing people coming up with incredible ideas in the healthcare space, in the fintech space, um, you know, thinking about how do we make sure that the institutions that we need to rely on are actually delivering what we need from them. Because um, I think what we've learned a lot in the past six months is not all of them are. So, you know, from a creative perspective on our side, as Charlotte said, there are definitely challenges trying to find ways to keep the team inspired and connected to each other. But I do think that this could be an incredible time for entrepreneurs and brands to rise to the occasion and um, help people through this. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much. We're so blessed to have two entrepreneurs and authors join us today on IAB there. Emily Hedward, uh, Hayward, pardon me, Emily Hayward of Red Antler, Charlotte Joe of Soko Glam, and also uh, of Then I Met You. Thank you so much for joining us on IAB there. And I hope we can have you back sometime. Thank you. It was so great. Good to see you, Charlotte. Hey.
Bye. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on IAB There. A couple of public service announcements. As I said at the top of the hour, we have our brand disruption summit. If you've been interested in the conversation I just had with uh, Emily and Charlotte, you'll be incredibly interested in the brand disruption summit, which is November 9th and 10th. And this month, starting this month, we have audience week, uh, which is all about uh, your 2021 planning. That will be the 29th of September through October 2nd. You can find out about all of those uh, at iab.com slash events. On our next IAB There, we are excited to welcome Carol Cooper, Senior Vice President of Global Marketing at Live Intent, as well as the co-host of the Minority Report podcast, IAB There. It's a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ons. John Ward and Carrie Villanueva. I'm Brad Barron's editor-in-chief here at the IAB. Thank you for watching. Join us again next week. We'll once again, it will be time to IAB there. Thanks again and bye-bye, everybody.